So I'd like to start with this beautiful bit of wisdom coming from Nisargadatta Maharaj. And this is the um, this is the river I'm flowing down now. These are his words. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And so the name of this talk is Love and Wisdom. Between the two, our life flows. It's said that the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree in India 2,600 years ago, when he profoundly opened to understand and realize the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of all suffering, and held the knowledge of how to develop the path to the end of suffering for the advancement of the holy life to ceasing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, and to Nibbana. It's said that even with this rare and precious understanding, as Guy talked about the other evening, he was still reluctant to offer those teachings to the world and to those around him. Because listeners without direct experience might be stuck in conceptualizations and would misunderstand what was said. That people really needed to practice, not just to understand in theory. To make a longer story short, what happened was that in the Buddha's heart, compassion opened to the suffering in himself and to the world around him. And it's said that a celestial being reminded him that there are beings in this world with but little dust in their eyes who could take in and apply the teachings and the training and understand experientially what the Buddha understood and then would be able to benefit their own life and the life of others around them. And so here we are, you know, beings, we think maybe we have a lot more dust in our eyes than (laughs) this quote says, but that's why we're here. For some reason, some good fortune, we've been brought to the Dharma to hear, to listen, to apply, to practice, and to realize the truth. So it's said that in the opening to that suffering uh, that really tormented places of his heart and mind, Compassion arose, and it was a strong and natural inclination towards uh, understanding what life was all about. It said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is opening to suffering. So these precious teachings we are all benefiting from today are coming to us from that direct and blessed energy of great compassion that the Buddha had. You could say that we're, we're going down this great river of understanding the truth of how things are because of the Buddha's compassion. In an old journal, I found a passage where I had written 
about a feeling that I'd had. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't tend to write journals. I don't tend to try to solidify my life anywhere, <laughs> except, of course, where I'm suffering. You know. Um, but I had written down that there was this quiet desperation. And that was, it was interesting to me because things could be pretty okay in my life. I mean, you know, I have the kind of suffering that a lot of people have, having to have children, raise children, you know, get through life, through all the ups and downs of life. I don't think I'm any different or any special, uh, way more special than anybody else in that way. But there was still this ever-present quiet desperation about life. I wanted to understand life more deeply than I could understand it at that moment and of time. And as I mentioned the other evening, I had this deep um, urge to want to know s- something about what was God anyway, you know, and to realize that. So Manindraji was around at that time, and he called that spiritual urgency. It's a word in Pali called samvega, a kind of spiritual urgency that we have that all of a sudden it comes upon us that we really want to know what life is all about. We really want to get to the bottom of it. We're willing to go through all the stuff we go through in in a retreat like this or in our lives in order to truly understand and to come to a place of some kind of peace in ourselves. And so that spiritual urgency has pushed me onward and is pushing all of you onward whether you can call it that or not. So I asked him at that time, what is the meaning of my life? What's the reason for my being in this human predicament? And he answered very directly, a lot of you have heard this before, it's to develop compassion and wisdom. It was really just boom, just like that, straightforward. It was, of course, he spent all of his time in teaching others and including myself about, about that way in his beingness and uh, walking his path and the ups and downs that he had to go through in his life. So um, this is important for us to do, to understand the meaning of compassion and wisdom, love and wisdom, and how are we integrating that in our lives? How can we find some kind of understanding about that that frees our own hearts and therefore we can be some kind of a, a being in humanity that lives one's life and helps through one's modeling. Maybe it's not talking about it, but we're a model for that integration of love and wisdom. So in some traditions, um, in our tradition, and I've heard in the Tibetan tradition, wisdom and compassion are called the two great wings of the Dharma. And... um, This is from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, 
These are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. (laughs) And a person with wisdom and no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. I love the way that that's put. Both will reinforce each other, can reinforce each other. Once we realize how interrelated we are, it is hard not to feel some level of compassion. And once we feel compassionate to others, we realize our interrelatedness. So the Dhamma means the truth of how life is, of how it is in life and in the moment-to-moment view of life that we have in practice like this. When we see what's happening, if we can trust what's going on in the process, we can kind of surrender to the natural unfolding of what's coming up and really surrender towards opening to it so that we can take in the truth of what's happening, really face it, and accept what's going on moment to moment. This is what our practice is. I know sometimes we sit here and we just don't want to open to what's happening. It's really hard. We'd rather, you know, oh, it's time to get up and have a cup of tea. And maybe that is the best thing to do in the moment. But we're opening to the nature of how it is. And I tend to really trust that nature because what's showing up is what needs to be faced and looked at. So that's why we use the word nature in our, in our work here. You know, we open to what the nature is of this body-mind continuum. So in these rare conditions where it's quiet and there's stillness, you know, we come to a retreat where we practice in noble silence, there's a, a level of slowness, a slowing down, a stillness, that's around us, and it really helps us to live in that relative solitude with less distraction so that we can face whatever nature is showing up in our hearts and our minds. So that the inner environment can also be stiller and can show up in a way that's really clear to us. So that's the reason for this kind of environment. We open to what's going on beneath that outer layer of busyness that we usually have in our lives. It's really helpful. So we open to many beautiful experiences, of course, but we also open to the fact of how vulnerable we are as human beings. You know, we we sit here with maybe a pain that we might usually have in life, in the body, or a heartache kind of pain. And in this silent stillness uh, that we're surrounded by and the magical uh, microscope of mindfulness that uh, is accompanying us, we see these conditions of our life in a really microscopic kind of enlarged way. And we see just how vulnerable we are in life how things are always moving and changing 
Uh, we can't really make anything stay. We're kind of vulnerable to that change. We're born into this world of great vulnerability, this constant change around us and the reactivity, the inner reactivity we have to what's going on around us, the fear, the attachment, you know, the, um, the anger we have when things aren't going our way. So conditions at every level are constantly in flux, and it's really hard to see this. We need a lot of compassion to open to this vulnerability. One of the ways I like the translation of the First Noble Truth is, life is vulnerable. Moment to moment, we see that. So we, we see that on a huge level, on the situations of the world around us, economically, politically, militarily, agriculturally, each one affecting another. And it it's, makes us feel really unstable if we're connected to the news so much. Um, the unrest and injustice in the world, the social, economic injustice around racism, around genderism, around all kinds of bias, ageism, and much more. It's really hard to be in this world. But I'm glad all of this is being brought out more in, in clarity, and we're not kind of pushing it to the side. It's a really vulnerable world right now because we're facing a lot of this kind of injustice, and we need to. We, it's, it's not right to hold it in ignorance for much longer. The elements of earth, air, fire, and water endlessly interacting with one another. Not just out there, how we see it out there in all the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the great deal of climate change that is a reality, but in ourselves, in this body and mind. You know, the... the um, experience the meditation on the four elements, the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. It's hugely important to understand that, that just the constant fluxing in this body, sometimes just that alone can give one this sense of urgency to really go forth more than we have. And the mind and the heart, um, you know, the vulnerability there, the response to our body's aging and to the natural processes and going more towards death and really feeling the, the quivering of the heart, even sometimes the compassion for that in ourselves and for others. So in the deepening practice here, we begin to notice also the habit patterns of the default settings, you know, the inner settings of the heart, the, deep, the places that kind of the deep grooves that we fall into in relationship to all of life, or when we see how it's changing within us. It's scary. There's a deep elements of fear that come from, you know, this is a kind of, a kind of aversion of greed, wanting things to be different and more pleasant. 
the lack of impulse to control all of this. You know, it just comes, it just comes there, out of our hearts and into view, hopefully first in the mind, so we can see it before it comes out of our mouths and into our actions. So we see the underlying causes of our feeling of a sense of dis-ease, you know, all these things that come up that we don't like seeing, disharmony within ourselves, the dis-ease that happens. This is hard to face, and sometimes we're overwhelmed and taken by surprise of how stubborn the mind is and how unrelenting it is. So... Of course, most of you understand all of this is the truth of dukkha. This is the first noble truth, dukkha satcha, the truth of suffering. This is the practice that we're opening up to, and it is inevitable. We need a tremendous amount of compassion for this in ourselves in order to carry on. If we didn't have this compassion for ourselves, we wouldn't be able to do it. So the ability for us to develop compassion is hugely important in our lives. And more so when we can relate what's happening to us, the same thing is happening to others. It's what makes that connection. So more on that. But first, um, just a, a little story about one of the teachers I've had, a Burmese teacher who's been on the side a lot, and... Um, But I remember being with him in one particular retreat. He would be the second person I would report to. One would be Seda Upandita and then another one. And he was appointed to be that other one. And I remember going to him for one very uh, difficult place in my practice. And it was a time when I was opening to kind of a new level of suffering in a way. And he had been present for other periods of practice, kind of on the side. And I know that, um, from what I hear, that the Sayadaws talk to each other about the yogis. Well, this one is doing that, this one's doing that. And so I knew he was quite knowledgeable about my own practice. And so when I went to him that day and let him know what the mind was opening up to, which was huge. He couldn't say much more than, that's how it is, isn't it? And he had the kindest look in his eyes. That connection of compassion he had with me stays with me more, and those simple words stays with me more than anything I could remember about how to do my practice then. He didn't say much more than that. But that connection of compassion that he had with me helped me to carry on. And it helped me to have more compassion for myself because um, I wasn't facing what was going on in me with a kind of tenderness. I was facing with a, like a kind of forcefulness to get through it, a kind of striving And so I was really opening to the noble truth of suffering again, you know, in in a different way from at a different level of my practice. 
And, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but (laughs) as we go through this practice, it enables us to develop much more courage, much more stamina, much more ability to see things as they are. But we still face dukkha. It's not going to be like an easy ride all the way through. We're going to face different layers or aspects of it or angles of it that maybe we hadn't faced before, certain areas of dukkha in our lives. It's just one time it was asked of one of our teachers, I never met her but heard so much about her, Deepama, why is it that we need to develop more and more, and especially equanimity? And she said, because we'll need to face deeper and deeper levels of dukkha. I'm just paraphrasing. She said it in a better way than I could say it now. But one of the things we develop is more compassion. You know, a a kind of endless infinity of compassion. That basic goodness of the heart, that basic love and goodwill that's able to turn towards what's really painful. Not just in ourselves, but we really need that first but all around us, because it's really difficult to be. You know, there's been, just like all of you, there's been stuff in my life that I've had to open to around me that's really, really difficult. I can see that I, I don't eliminate to see, I don't eliminate the fact that whatever people are doing in this world, you know, at every level, um, political leaders and people around us, you know, in our own families, that things are not being done in a way that's in alignment with sila or with, you know, living in harmony. And yet I can face that and see that, but I can also have deep compassion for that. I can also see the care I have for beings that I might not have if I didn't have compassion. I, I can open to that, the suffering in that being. And I cannot turn away from seeing the good of that being, the potential good or the present good of that being. That's why, you know, it, my life tends to have this incredible amount of perseverance, which is one of the paramis, you know, one of the beautiful qualities that one develops on the path. So it's actually able to go towards and connect with whatever's happening inwardly and outwardly with some level of unconditional kindness and compassion. Even though it's a little bit at times, and I wish it was more, it's able to see this is hard for that being too, whatever level you know, of life that being is at. In, in terms of, you know, their um, leadership in the world or just, you know, a relative or one of my own children. So what happens is what we feel this quivering of the heart that opens to suffering, and that's one of the expressions and the um, descriptions of compassion, the quivering of the heart that opens to suffering the heart quivers because it has, to me, it, it's a signal. It has energy. It says, you can do this. You know, you can open to this. 
and it gives you the courage to do that. You need that kind of energy of courage and the energy of love to really open to something that's a real dilemma that we're facing in our lives. In our own, you know, our own relationship to suffering in the world, that's a dilemma. And, and the suffering in the world and the suffering of people immediately around us. So I've always been, um, you know, I'm, I haven't studied that much in the Tibetan Buddhist realm, but I have a great respect for it. And I see a lot of, um, like Guy has been presenting, a lot of overlap of understanding, of course, because our basic understanding from in all the traditions of Buddhism is a Four Noble Truths, so, and compassion as well. So this is what, you know, brings us to kind of have great reverence and respect for all the traditions. And one of them uh, that I have a great um, respect for is the Tibetan Buddhist uh, um, emanation of compassion, which is the green Tara. And I've actually practiced, done white Tara practice in in my life as a, um, you know, as a Buddhist in this, from the Tibetan teachings. And this green, but this green Tara is a feminine divine aspect of compassion. It's depicted, she's depicted in a sitting position, but her right foot is ready to, is out, ready to act. She's ready to step into like offering whatever she can to life. And this is the action of compassion. Even in our own um, tradition that a guy and I are majorly based in, but you know, open to all the wisdom that comes from all sides, um, I was, it, it really stood out to me in this book of Compassion and Emptiness by Analayo, which I, I had never heard before, but he had translated something from our tradition uh, that said something about how compassion doesn't only need to be the thought of compassion, the feeling of compassion, but it has to be connected with the actually the action in the world in order for it to be complete. So it's not just that we go around saying, oh, I have compassion for so-and-so, you know. It's really, can we carry it out? That's what it's being asked, uh, what's being asked of us. It's the in, not only the inclination or the intention, but the carrying out of it as well. Because this involves, you know, a greater um, form of wholesome karma. So in our practice, we can no longer fool ourselves. We learn to be really honest in facing what is difficult to bear, opening to parts of our makeup that we're not used to opening to, seeing things that we're not so proud of sometimes. And it allows us to be able to say so to others, to not be ashamed of like that, that, that part of our lives, a shadow part of our lives. To be able to say it means we're saying the truth. Feelings and states of mind we haven't acknowledged because if they came up, they'd be hard to be with. 
So what happens is we distract ourselves and cover it up with excuses or defenses or being so busy we can't, you know, we don't take the time. Shame and prejudice, judging our, ourselves and others, dismissiveness for those who have different, a different view, viewpoint, disdain for others who are really just innocently living their lives, but they're different from us in some way, their color, their religion, their cultural background, how they describe their, uh, they self-identify in their gender, what their age is, you know, there's all of this going on in the world, and I'm glad we're all facing it head on nowadays, especially in the Dharma. There's a big movement to really acknowledge all of this, acknowledge this ability to be with diversity. So, of course, there's beautiful qualities too. For the most part, they're easier to open to, but sometimes they're difficult as well. We hear all the time in the Dharma when we're talking to people and listening that it's really hard for people to open up to a sense of love for oneself. It's really hard to open up to our own goodness, even though, you know, we know we're good. You know, we have those old feelings that not good enough. Um, you know, for, for myself as a person of color, coming from an Asian tradition, um, I was talking to this about this to one of the others here. There's a, there's a sense of, I don't have a voice because Asians don't have a voice, especially Asian women. And to be able to, to have a voice, you know, is really a different thing. And, and of course, because um, the voice for most people usually comes from the man. So it's really an awful feeling for an Asian person in that regard. I'm, I'm just, you know, bringing out what people feel in the Dharma. And um, I was talking to a person of color in a retreat, an African-American person who was dismissed, you know, in, a, in, in, the, in the realm of the Dharma. And I said, well, how did you feel about that? And she said, I'm used to it. I'm used to being silenced. That really stung. <clears throat> so I'm just... I just want to be really truthful about suffering. All kinds of suffering exist. It's hard to hear. We have a fragility about that. You know, I, I sense that, but we really have to get used to it. So all of this takes a fair amount of compassion to open to and not back down from like all the suffering that goes on in the world not just, you know, in the world we're used to, but opening to that in in everyone's world. So with our rational minds, we know that these patterns related to greed, hatred, and delusion are so harmful, yet they're so deeply rooted and entrenched. We can fall into them so easily. So we really need that courage of compassion that's able to turn towards suffering and really face it unflinchingly 
And when we can do it in ourselves, we can do it for others. In others, too. So we have this wisdom to understand that this is the predicament of all beings. And that's what connects us. So we need this incredible force of connection to be able to open to uh, what's really difficult. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So it's, it is just as it opened the compassion and wisdom of the Buddha, it opens that in ourselves as well. And so from what I hear and see in the various communities that I'm connected with and I feel in my own heart, there's a growing sense of urgency in general to do what we can to help, to offer our gifts, however insignificant we consider them to be. I heard a a story, in fact, um, Guy and and Candle and I were talking about how there were, uh, there was an article about how a lot more women were signing up to run for office, you know, and how um, they just didn't give up. There was one woman, maybe you read the article, there was one woman who was even, she, she went, she signed up to um, run for a particular office and um, then she became pregnant, but she still decided to go on and she ran for that office and she gave, it, she had to go through a lot. You know, she had her baby and I guess they were twins, right? <laughs> they were twins. And the husband decided to help her to take care of the baby so she could go out and do all that she needed to do to run for office. And she won, you know? Yeah, it was really, really great. And then there, and then there was a story told of another um, woman. Well, now I'm, I'm remembering, it wasn't an article, but it was a news, um, yeah, it was on the news. So anyway, to help, to do what we can, to offer our gifts, no matter how insignificant we consider them to be, to touch the world, which is increasing in in complexity and speed, to touch it with the humanity of slowing down, of simplicity, to touch the earth with kindness and wisdom. So equally as strong, there's a growing spiritual urgency to go within, which we're doing here and we have done. And so we know the value of it, so we come back. And um, we go to that place of simply recognizing, relaxing, allowing the inner landscape to be known in a balanced way to get interested in the natural inner unfolding of nature. So I don't know if you folks have recognized that I was going through this acronym of RAIN. Recognize, relax, allow, take interest, and see that everything is nature. So in the course of doing that, we're able to experience a clear view of how it's actually going on in within us, 
what's going on in our minds and our hearts. It takes a sobering honesty and unflinching courage to do that, to see the underpinnings of what our personality are. And um, this is from Lily Tomlin. I love her Mm -hmm. saying, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. (laughs) It's really hard to see it. I mean... I have I have quite a few cringing moments, and then I have to notice cringing, you know. <laughs> so I love this uh, saying also by Agnes Au. Um, it was in the Shambhala Sun, Buddhist women talking about exposing the underlying habit patterns through our practice, and she said, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. I mean, isn't that what we really want? An unfiltered life. We're, we're not seeing it through the filters of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we face what's going on in this inner terrain that has gone on unchecked, unaware of, and the effect of that on the outer terrain of our world. And we begin to ask questions then. What creates harmony and happiness on the individual level and on the social level? What habitual forces create an ecology of deepening peace and harmony? So these are deep questions for us as practitioners. It's not just about ourselves and a selfish act of becoming liberated. It's, it's really about doing this for the benefit of all beings, including oneself. So there's this urgency to develop and be an agent for what can be good in the world. So granted, our practice may not radically change the whole world, but in fact we're transforming our own hearts and minds, and that can be a possibility, and that can send out ripples into the world. So the practice we're doing here is heart-based understanding and connection with others. And I'm going to connect it to um, the wisdom part as well. So to complete this compassion part, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops these atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, which has an undeniable infinite outreach in our world. So I'd like now to talk a little bit about this other wing of the Dharma, the wisdom part, which we've been elucidating more and how both of these need to evolve and strengthen one another. So taking the courage and tenderness and willingness to open to how it is in the truth of this inner world is um, how we're trying to understand things on a larger level. But we have to open to the wisdom that's being available to us through this fathom-long body and this mind that is accompanying it. So what happens is that this tenderness of compassion relaxes the attention. 
the self-compassion we have for um, the suffering that we're opening to relaxes the body, relaxes the heart field at all the stages of opening. There's more calm and less reactivity naturally when there's compassion. There's a sense of balance and equanimity that can arise. And then just as in the practice, uh, the meditation practice that Guy was offering on emptiness from Majjhima 121 and also the Big Sky Meditation, which is very similar, um, that also can, is an enormous support for mindful awareness to remain steady and continuous and clear It opens uh, the heart and mind to a sense of peace and quietness where everything can be seen more clearly with pristine awareness. And so the view of life, this inner life starts to change with those kinds of uh, support. What's happening beneath the layers of conceptual reality are really important. This is from Kalu Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master. He said, the mind makes and experiences the universe, but it is empty, nothing in and of itself. It is empty of nothing in and of itself. Finding the empty nature of mind, letting it rest there, gives us much relief and relaxation amidst the turmoil, confusion, and suffering that constitute the world. So in realizing this compassion and this empty nature, which we realize in other ways too, it brings us to a place of uh, great stability in our lives we begin to reflect more um, on the ultimate reality of the basic processes of this mind and body continuum. As you all have seen in one way or another, when mindful attention is really continuous and strong, it kind of pierces through the solidity, the, the um, sense of solidity that is there. And the defining lines of what we call body become intangible and thin and porous. It's just various sensations arising, changing, and dissolving. Hardness and softness and heat and coolness, darting and tickling and heaviness and lightness, for example, arising, passing away in what we call body. The experiential insubstantiality and impermanence of every single part, of every single moment of what we call body comes to be known. The emptiness of it in terms of any solidity or concrete continuity anywhere. This is another way emptiness is come to be known. The deep understanding of anicca, that universal characteristic, Uh, comes to be known experientially, not as a heady understanding, but as an experiential understanding. 
And then because it's because of impermanence, the ability to understand that there isn't really anything to grasp or cling to, that in all the ways we're trying to kind of stop life and find a, a security or a kind of everlasting happiness doesn't exist. It's all changing. You know, so our weakening around this area of attachment to what, we, what we're looking for always in life, to have some enduring satisfaction, starts to weaken. And we start to understand the unsatisfactory nature, which is dukkha, the second characteristic. Just kind of reviewing what I did in my, what I offered you in my other talk about the three characteristics. And then the mind is not overlaying or cobbling together any concept of this me or mine or who I am or what belongs to me. Everything is dissolving. And this new wisdom arises experientially and not theoretically of the emptiness of any solid core, of any place that we can say, this is self, because even that place that we say this is self disappears eventually. The mind begins to realize the wisdom of emptiness through anatta, the anatta characteristic. So all of these characteristics are known through anicca, through dukkha, through anatta. So this is being experienced empirically. It's not something that we're making up. Awareness has the power to reflect clearly how it all appears and disappears faster than the mind can catch up with sometimes. Nothing's permanently satisfying and reliable because it's always changing. So there comes a time in the practice where the mind knows not to reach out anymore. It just stays more still. So nowhere, not even in the mind or consciousness, can there, be find, can there be found any enduring entity. So this understanding, this wisdom of emptiness is really known. So these changing conditions coming together, the materiality of the body, the aspects of the mind, forming what we call on this relative plane of existence, a sense of self. That's what it forms, a sense of self, kind of moment to moment to moment. But underneath we see that this sense of, sense of self is made up of this flow of experiences, sensations in the body, hearing, tasting, smelling, seeing, moods of the mind and thought processes, and the knowing of all of that. This strong mindful attention is accompanied by the courage of compassion, in order to keep going. We wouldn't be able to keep going if we didn't have this courage to really face it in its raw form. It's seen deeply, unflinchingly, in its flowing on nature. So what we call life is seen from a more complete place of understanding. And we begin to live life more fully, knowing that what we call ourselves on a relative plane of existence 
is fine. We can say, yeah, this is a sense of self that we live in on this relative plane. But more fully we see it with much more wisdom on the ultimate or absolute plane of existence at deeper levels, beneath the level of concept, even beneath the level of concept of self. So yes, there are two understandings that are happening here that support one another and that come to be known in this unfolding process. There is this flow of changing processes of the body and mind that come into existence, they change and pass away. So we can call this self just as it is. And from time immemorial, we have thought it to be some solid, enduring entity. And now it's seen in a different way. So I'd like to read this quote by Albert Einstein. It's really interesting. You probably heard this a few times in the Dharma. Um, Although he wasn't, certainly he wasn't a Buddhist, these statements that he made sound much like it. He said, a human being is part of a whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. One experiences oneself, one's thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of one's consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affectation for a few people near us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature. And he he puts a, a beautiful spin on it. The whole of nature in its beauty. So we can see that too, in its beauty. So experientially... Under the magical microscope of mindfulness, uh, all these processes, these moving processes are seen as empty, nothing solid or enduring at the level of absolute or ultimate reality. And yet on this relative and relational plane of existence, it's useful to say we have a sense of self. Indeed, we, we do need to have a pretty good sense of oneself in order to operate in this world. But it's just like having a cup. On a relative level, it has its usefulness to say that this is a cup. (laughs) This is a self here. But under a microscope, we can see that it's not as solid as we thought it to be under this microscope of mindfulness. There are different levels of understanding that we can hold in a unified manner, each supporting one another. It helps to respect the relative level of reality with compassion and to see the ultimate level of reality without being cold or indifferent, you know, and being in that ivory tower and um, exercising spiritual bypassing, you know, to say it's all impermanent, it's all impersonal, you know, like your suffering is really useless. (laughs) That's really hard to hear, you know, from from people. That's when I'm, I'm really aware of, like, my hand just ready to go out and saying, boom. 
but I don't do that. (laughs) On a relative level, compassion supports a tender connection with all beings on this earth, which we really need to have. Even when we're hurt by another being, can we have compassion for whatever that being is going through? That's the ultimate level of compassion that we could have. So... um, There's a sense of agency to do what we can to help relieve suffering in the world. Experientially, we can also understand the ultimate reality of the emptiness of it all, you know, through impermanence, through understanding anatta, anicca, and the the kind of way that um, we try to hang on, but it's all moving. So this helps us to operate on this earth with greater wisdom. Aiken Roshi, who is one of the great Zen teachers of our time, who died in the last years, he lived actually on Maui, and I got to know him a bit. And um, then he moved to Oahu. But he said this wonderful thing about this understanding of no self, or not self, this empty nature of self. He said... We hear about no not-self and think it's wrong to have a self. But on a relative level, we must respect that there is a self. And this self can be an agent of good in this world. And so he's talking about honoring the precepts of non-harming. So we realize... This is His Holiness the Dalai Lama again. We realize the intimate connection between the conventional truth and the ultimate truth through the practice of compassion. It is through compassion that we become thoroughly grounded in the conventional truth and thus prepared to receive the ultimate truth. Compassion brings great warmth and kindness to both perspectives It helps us to be flexible in our interpretation of the truth and teaches us to give and receive help in practicing the precepts. It's just a beautiful way of really understanding that, um, as Nisargadatta Maharaj says, love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two, my life flows. So the question is, can we really do that? So let's sit for a few moments. <laughs> 